hard to believe that we're now three weeks away from the end of the year. After today, there are three Sundays left in this year. it's, It's just hard for me to imagine. Two weeks from today is Christmas Eve. Uh, In fact, by the way, it's probably a good point for me to make an announcement to you just to make sure that you know, you know, our tradition around here is that we love hosting Christmas Eve services uh, on Christmas Eve night. And we've done this for probably 20 years, about 9 p.m. we gather and and we worship. This year, if you haven't seen the schedule, let me make sure you, you have no confusion about it. We are not going to do that this year. Because Christmas Eve is on Sunday, so we're just going to stick with our normal uh, service schedule on Sunday mornings, three services here in Weaverville. Both services will be happening at at, uh, both of our uh, other campuses. So we'll do our regular Sunday morning service schedule, but no evening uh, Christmas Eve service. But that said, it's just hard for me to believe that we've come this near to the end of 2023. And you know what? I think it's been a good year. God has blessed us. We've seen hundreds of people come to faith in Christ. We have seen uh, uh, several hundred people baptized. We've seen, uh, uh, what well, I'm not even sure the number of families that have joined, but lots of new families have joined. Uh, we've launched a new campus. It's just been a wonderful year of God's grace and provision. And we've learned a lot on Sunday mornings. If if you've learned some things this year on Sunday morning, would you encourage your pastor and say amen? We had, oh, wow. Thank you. I wasn't expecting that, but you can do it again. If, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> it really has been a great year of study in God's Word. And I, was, I was taking some time to go back over the series that we've worked through. There have been six of them. We've had six series throughout the course of the year, and much of that has been Old Testament learning. All the way back in the beginning of of 2023, we started the year learning about the life of Abraham. Do you remember? We spent, I think, three months studying about uh, the life of Father Abraham. And that was a helpful and an encouraging series. And then we we stepped out of that one right about Easter time and spent about a month thinking about the power of the resurrection. Then we jumped back into the Old Testament uh, with uh, about a month-long series Uh, studying the life of Ruth. Um, And then coming out of Ruth, we stayed in the Old Testament and we spent all summer long thinking about the mighty voices of the prophets. One of my favorite studies that we've done in years around here was the mighty voices uh, as we thought about the prophets. And then we came into the fall uh, learning to get fit and uh, learning some spiritual disciplines together. And most recently, for the last couple of months, as you know, we've been in Proverbs Um, And we've been thinking about blueprint and learning how to build a family on the blueprint of God's word and and, uh, build a family on the basis of God's wisdom. So it's been a good year for all of that. But here we are just a few weeks away from the end of the year coming into Christmas season. And now we're going to think about Christmas. So let me begin by asking you a question. Um, Answer out loud, yes or no. Are you ready for Christmas? All right, so here in Weirville, it's, it's about half and half. It's a good question. Are you ready? You know, over the years of performing uh, wedding ceremonies, which I've done many times over, uh, what, 30-plus years of ministry, and I have to tell you there have been so many times that, that um, I've stood at the altar with, with young couples, and, you know, everything in their life has pointed to this moment, right? I mean, this is like the biggest moment 
of their lives. They, they've thought about it since they were children, little girls, have, have dreamed of their wedding day since they were little girls, and, and now they've maybe dated for a few years and been engaged for a year or so, and, and so everything in their life is pointed to this day, and it all comes to this moment when they will stand before an officiant, in, in the cases where I'm the officiant, stand before me, and there's that moment they've been living for when I will say, I now pronounce you husband and wife. And so many times I've gotten to that moment in the ceremony and just stopped and said, are you ready? <laughs> and they're always like, yeah, we're ready, we're ready. And I'm like, we could just wait a minute, couldn't we? And they're like, no, 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 we're ready. And so I want you to know we need to get ready for Christmas. And when I say, are you ready? I don't mean, have you finished your Christmas shopping? Or have you finished putting up all the decorations? What I mean is, is your heart ready for Christmas? And by God's grace, we're going to spend the next three Sundays, today and two more Sundays leading up to Christmas Eve, thinking about our preparation, our three most important responses to the incarnation of God in Christ. And let me just remind you, that's what we celebrate at Christmas. The incarnation of God in human flesh. God robing himself in flesh and coming to be our Savior. So we're going to spend some time thinking about preparation. Are we prepared to worship him? We're going to talk about how that we praise him appropriately and then on Christmas Eve, we will think about our proclamation of the reality or the blessing of Christmas. But today, and by the way, all three weeks we will be in Luke chapters 1 and 2. Today we're going to begin in Luke chapter number 1. And you know that every time a pastor says around this time of year, turn to the gospel of Luke, you know what's getting ready to happen, don't you? With every Christmas sermon with every Christmas card, with every Christmas carol, uh, with every Christmas drama that little children put on in, in churches across the land, the intention every time is to transport us in our thinking back in time across the world to a tiny little village called Nazareth to a young virgin girl named Mary who has an encounter with a mighty angel named Gabriel. And this is exactly where our Christmas reflections begin almost every time. Let me read to you Luke chapter 1, this very moment in verse number 26. Luke 1 and 26 says, And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail thou that art highly favored. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And there is where we begin every year, every sermon, every Christmas carol. Blessed are you among women. We call this the Annunciation. This is the moment when Gabriel arrives in Nazareth to announce to Mary that she is the one chosen by God. She is the one who will have this favor of God upon her life, this blessed privilege of being the one through whom the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior of the world will enter into the human family. 
And we read it, and we know it so well, and, and it, it causes these warm sorts of emotions to well up within us. And we almost always read right past the first six or seven words without even thinking about them. Look at it again, verse 26. And in the sixth month. Wait a minute. What sixth month? <laughs> Have you ever thought about it? What is the sixth month that's in view? Is it the sixth month of the year? What does Gabriel mean by the sixth month? Well, you don't have to read far in the context to know exactly what Gabriel is talking about. Let me take you back to verse 5, still in Luke 1, but verse number 5, where we're introduced to a couple named Zechariah and Elizabeth. Verse 5 says, There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zechariah of the course of Abiah and his wife, who was one of the daughters of the descendants of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So verse 5, you're introduced to a couple, a priest and his wife. His name is Zechariah. Her name is Elizabeth. When you look at chapter 1 and verse number 24, you discover that this couple are going to have a baby. Now we know Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 2 is all about the birth of a baby. But here's another baby that's being spoken of. Look at verse number 24. And after those days, his wife, Zechariah's wife, Elizabeth, conceived and she hid herself for five months. So Zechariah and Elizabeth are going to have a baby. Another little tidbit of information that you learn in Luke chapter number 1, you'll see it in verse 36, is that Elizabeth and Mary, who will be the mother of Jesus, Elizabeth and Mary are cousins. They're close relatives. Look at verse 36. The angel Gabriel, now speaking to Mary in Nazareth, says to her, Behold, your cousin Elizabeth, she also has conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for with God nothing shall be impossible. Well, there's the answer. The question of what is the sixth month with which we always begin our nativity readings, the answer is that it is the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Which is significant because if Luke chapter 1 and 2 are de uh, devoted to telling us about the birth of the most important person who ever lived, this birth of God in the person of Jesus Christ, if that chapter, those two chapters are committed to telling us about that birth, and yet alongside that birth, there's another child being born, well, that child must play a significant role and be very, very important as well. And we should understand who that child is. And that's what we're going to talk about today, this child born to Zechariah and Elizabeth. So let's read it. Luke chapter number 1, and we're going to begin reading in verse number, we'll, we'll just pick it up at verse 5 again to learn about this lesser-known child of whom Luke writes about his conception and his birth. Luke chapter 1, verse 5. There was in the days of King Herod, uh, the king of Judah, a certain priest named Zechariah, his wife Elizabeth. Verse number 6, they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blamelessly. And they had no child, no children, because Elizabeth was barren, and now they were both well stricken 
in years. Now stop right there for just a second. If you are a married couple and you want to have children and you are unable to conceive, that is a heartbreaking situation for couples to be in. Maybe some of you are in that situation and you know it, you know it well. Certainly we all know couples who would love to have children and they can't. But in the first century, in this culture, to not be able to have a child and specifically, more specifically, to not be able to have a son was the highest possible grief for a woman. Because the family name and the lineage and the heritage and the, and the inheritance and the hope of all the family rested in the birth of a man-child. And yet, Elizabeth could not conceive. They could have no children. This was devastating to her and, and to Zechariah. And yet the Bible says in verse number 6 that they were both righteous before God. They were walking in the commandments and the ordinances of the Lord blamelessly, and they had been for all of their lives. They're now well-stricken in years. If y'all are listening on every campus, shout amen. amen. You can be godly and have great disappointment. Sometimes people say, why do bad things happen to good people? Maybe you've said that. Maybe you've gotten angry at God. God, how could you let this happen to me? I'm trying to serve you. And this is such a bad circumstance in my life. Maybe you looked at some family or some person suffering. You said, that's such a good person. It's such a good family. Such a good man or woman. And now they've got this hardship, this grief, this loss, this disappointment. How could a good God allow that to happen? Listen to me. You can be godly and live with great hurts and pains and disappointments. But here's the good news. Christ has plunged into this world to lift us out of our disappointments. And he gives us grace in the midst of them. And grace upon grace, he takes them and uses our hurts and disappointments for his glory. That's certainly what he does in Elizabeth and Zechariah's life. God's going to do what would seem impossible. Remember, Gabriel said to Mary, Elizabeth is now six months pregnant. She was barren. She's uh, old now, and yet she has conceived because nothing is impossible with God. And so now they're going to have a child. Verse number 8, back to the text, Luke 1 and verse 8, it came to pass that while he, Zechariah, executed the priest's office before God in the order of his course according to the custom of the priest's office, his lot was to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord, which by the way speaks of worship in the temple. He is a righteous, godly man worshiping while he's worshiping in the temple, verse 10 says, the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the time of incense. And while he is in the temple, verse 11 says, there appeared unto him an angel of the Lord. We know that it's Gabriel. An angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was troubled. And fear fell upon him. And the angel said unto him, fear not, Zechariah. For thy prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth shall bear for you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you shall have joy and gladness because of him, and many shall rejoice at his birth. For he shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and he shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord 
their God, and he shall go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. There's a lot of information in those few verses, isn't there? Those verses tell us a lot about this lesser-known baby of Luke's gospel that is conceived and going to be born. It tells us in verse number 13 what his name is. That's a good place to begin considering this information. Verse 13 says, your wife Elizabeth is going to have a son, and you shall call his name John. Now, we know, who, we know which John he is not. He's not John the Beloved or John the Apostle. You know who he is, don't you? His, we call him John the... Thank you for not saying the Methodist. He's not John the Methodist. He's John the Baptist. Not because he was a member of a Baptist church. The Baptist church hadn't been born at that time. But he's John the Baptizer. This is going to be his ministry. He's the, he, he's the Baptizer. So his name is to be called John. He will be become known as John the Baptist. Verse number 15 tells us about his devotion, how that he is set apart for the Lord. It says that he shall uh, neither drink wine nor strong drink. He shall be filled with the Holy Spirit. It just speaks of his sanctified life, set apart for the Lord. Uh, Verse 15 speaks about his greatness, his impact that he will have. Uh, Verse 15 says he shall be great in the sight of the Lord. Verse number 16 says that he will have a ministry of reconciliation. Many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. What a wonderful ministry. What an important life to come along to people and turn them to the Lord their God. That's what he does. It's a ministry of reconciliation. Verse 17 says that he will be a prophet. He will go forth like a prophet. The word of the Lord will come to him like a prophet. And that he will go forth in the spirit and in the power, the strength of Elijah. And verse 17 closes by saying that the purpose of his life will be the purpose of preparation. The purpose of John's life is to prepare Israel to receive their Messiah. In fact, if you have a pen in your hand on every campus, circle those last few words of verse 17 to make ready a people Circle these words, prepared for the Lord. His life purpose will be to prepare Israel to receive their Messiah. And all of these true things about John are declared by the angel Gabriel when? Once John is growing and everyone can see his potential? No. Once he's really established himself in the community? No. When does Gabriel say that he will be a prophet like Elijah? He will turn people to the Lord. He will be devoted. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit. And he will be great in the sight of God. Those things are declared over John's life before John is even conceived. Sometimes you have believed, God could never do great things in my life. I could never be used by the Lord. I'm to this. I'm not enough that. Well, you know, I've got that past. Well, you know, if I were more this, if I had more of that, if I were more like that person, then God could use me. And God looked into the life of John the Baptist and said, I will use him. And that kid had not even, not only had he not been born, he had not been conceived. 
God knows the days of your life, and God wants to use your life mightily for his glory. He says that he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will prepare these people, Israel, to receive their king. Well, in verse 57, this comes to pass. He is conceived, of course, and then in verse 57, he is born. You might make a note of this out of the margin somewhere, just maybe write John's birth. Verse 57 says, Now Elizabeth's full time came that she should be delivered, and she brought forth a son. And so John the Baptist is born. Well, let's read, keep reading the text. Skip down to verse number 67, where beginning in verse number 67, at the birth of his son, John, Zechariah begins to prophesy or to speak over the life of his son. It's a beautiful passage. Listen to this aged father who thought he would never have a son now speaking prophetically, scripturally, biblically over his little infant son. Verse 67, And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Ghost and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people. He is raising up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of them that hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he sware to our father Abraham, that he would grant unto us that we, being delivered out of the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our lives. Now stop right there. What you have is Zechariah speaking about the redemption that God is sending which is being preceded by the birth of John. In verses 67 through 75, he's not talking about John. John's not the Redeemer. The Redeemer will be the one who will come through Mary's womb. Zechariah is simply saying, God is keeping his promise. Now is the time. Now imagine this. He says all of those things recorded there, and then he looks down into the eyes of this infant son that he's holding. And he speaks to John. Follow verse number 76. And thou, child, you, my little son, you shall be called the prophet of the highest. For you shall go before the face of the Lord to prepare. There's that word again, to prepare his ways. To give the knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins. Through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high has visited us to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet in the way of peace. And the prophecy and the proclamation ends in verse number 79 and the narrative picks back up in verse number 80. Speaking of John, and the child grew and waxed strong in spirit and was in the deserts until the day of his showing forth to Israel. What Zechariah speaks in this moment of the birth of his son, speaking over the life of his son, prophesying about what his life will be like, and thanking God for the promise of the Messiah is a beautiful,
beautiful thing to behold. And all of the words that Zechariah speaks are in agreement with verse 17 where Gabriel is speaking about the life of John. By the way, I believe that this is very appropriate for parents and grandparents to do, to speak over the lives, to pray over the lives of our children. Not to speak in a way where we claim things for our children that we have no right to claim. Zechariah wasn't making this up. Every proclamation that he made about his infant son was already proclaimed and revealed to him through the words of Gabriel, the angel. So he's agreeing with the word of God. And our proclamations or prophecies over our children's lives, certainly our prayers over our children or our grandchildren's lives, should agree with God's word. But we should pray and proclaim and, yes, prophesy in agreement with God's word. I really wish that I had known this or had considered this when our children were small, but it's only been recently, the last few years, uh, that I've begun to try to pray over my own now adult children's lives and certainly over the lives of our grandchildren, begun to pray scripture over them. I've tried to make it a habit in the last few years to pray Psalm 144 over the lives of my children and my grandchildren, and particularly the last few verses of Psalm 144. I think it's appropriate, and I would encourage all of you who are parents or grandparents to do that very thing. When you're watching your your kids or your grandkids sleeping, or you're rocking them in a rocker, or you're watching them play, just just prayerfully, and yes, in in confident uh, faith in God's word, even, even prophetically in agreement with God's word, speaking blessing over the lives of our kids. This is what he does in verse number 76. He says, and you, child, you will be a prophet of God. You will go before the Lord. You will prepare the way before him. You see, the promise of the Messiah had been given, and now John had come. In fact, write this down somewhere. I've said it several times in different ways already. But John had come to prepare the way for this Messiah. And this is what Zechariah is affirming. John was the leader, the the, uh, pre-voice to the Messiah who would follow right along behind him. Now, by the way, the reason that Zechariah is making this prophecy, the reason he's declaring these things is because he knows that God is true to his word. Let me just say to all of you on every campus, listen to your pastor, God keeps his promises. And it doesn't matter how long and dark the night has been or how distant the promises seem, God can be trusted to keep his promises to you. Do you realize that when the angel Gabriel showed up in the temple and spoke to Zechariah about the birth of the Messiah and the birth of his son who would prepare the way for the Messiah, do you realize that it had been a long time since any voice had come from heaven? Do you know how long it had been? Malachi was the final prophet of the Old Testament. And Malachi closes out the promises of the Old Testament looking forward to the coming of the Messiah and prophesying about the one who would come in the spirit and the power of Elijah, the promised preparer. Malachi closes the Old Testament promising that they will come. 
And five years passed and no Messiah. And 10 years passed and no Messiah. And a century passed and he had not come. And there was no angel to speak and no prophet was raised up and no voice came from heaven for 100 years, for 200 years, for 300 years, for 400 years. Heaven was silent. And still they believed in the promises of God. Don't you ever give up hope that God will keep his word. He will always keep his promises. And Zechariah kept his hope alive. And the people of Israel kept their hopes alive by reciting, by rehearsing the promises that God had made. Look at verse 70, chapter 1, verse 70. He spake by the mouth, Zechariah says, that God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets. He says, God promised us through his prophets that he would send us salvation. And look with me at verse number 72. He promised to perform the mercy promised to our fathers. He had told the patriarchs and, and our ancestors that he would keep his holy covenant, his promise made with us. And look at verse number 73, that he promised to keep this oath which he sware unto our father Abraham. You see what, you see what Zechariah's doing? He's saying, God, I know you're going to keep your promises because you told all the prophets you would and you told our ancestors you would and you told Abraham that you would. And God, if you've made all these promises, I know that you will keep them. And what are the promises that God made to Israel through their Messiah? Let me give them to you quickly. Just jot these down. Number one, he promised, as, as Zechariah reminds us, that he would deliver us from our enemies this is Zechariah's declaration in verse 69. He has raised up a horn of salvation. It means like, like the horns on the corners of the altars where they would hang and cling to the altar that God is sending one that we could cling to in faith and that he would deliver us from our enemies. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David. He spake by the mouth of his prophets, verse 71, that we should be saved from our enemies from the hand of all that hate us. And they were living for, four, for all of these years under the oppressive regimes of the day. In Zechariah's day, they were living under the oppressive rule of the Romans. And yet he said, God promised that he would deliver us from those that hate us, from our enemies. He promised, secondly, that we would be able to serve him without fear. Verse number 74, that he would grant unto us that we, being delivered out of the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and in righteousness before him all of the days of our lives. That's the promise that God made. God said, I'm going to deliver you from your enemies and I'm going to let you serve me without that fear of oppression, that fear that I'm not pleased with you, that fear that our fellowship can never be restored because of the oppression that you're under. You're going to serve me without fear in holiness and in righteousness, the third promise he made is that he would forgive us of our sins, Zechariah says. Verse number 77, to give the knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring on high hath visited us. And then the fourth promise that he had made to Israel regarding their Messiah is that the Messiah would come and give light not only to them but to the nations. This is verse number 79. To give light to them that sit in darkness. That's the Gentiles. To give light unto the nations and in those in the shadow of death and to guide our feet in the way of peace. I love this. I love that Zechariah, old 
the old man that he is, not even having had a son of his own, simply trying to be faithful in carrying out his duties in the temple at the end of 400 silent years where God has not spoken and still he is saying, God, you promised to deliver us from our enemies and God, you promised that we could serve you in righteousness and holiness without fear and you promised that you would forgive us of our sins and you promised to send the light and God, we believe you. Now listen to me, all of you on every campus, hear your pastor this morning. Those promises of God to the people of Israel are the promises of God to you today. I want you to hear me. God has made to each one of us a promise in Jesus Christ. And here's that promise. I will deliver you from your enemies, the enemy of your soul. The enemy that binds you in lost blindness. The enemy that has covered your eyes. The enemy that binds you in addiction. The enemy that binds you in fear. I can release you from the enemies that bind you. And I will allow you to serve me. To go from fear to fearlessness. To go from bondage to freedom. To go from unholiness to holiness and unrighteousness to righteousness. I will allow you to worship and serve me without fear. And I will forgive you of all of your sins. And I will send my light to your soul and my light through you. And the promises that God has made remain yours today. But you must do what Zechariah did. You must appropriate those promises. You must believe that God is a God who keeps his word And so Zechariah declares that these promises were believable and that God would in fact and had in fact in the birth of his son that God had proven his power and his faithfulness. And so verse 80, as I mentioned, continues the narrative. And so here you have all these promises made and at the end of all those proclamations, guess what John is? He's still an infant. And so time has to pass. And verse 80 says, and the child grew And he became strong in spirit and he went into the desert and he stayed in the the desert until the day of his showing forth unto Israel. John grows up. We don't know exactly when it is that he went into the desert. We don't know exactly why it is that he went into the desert and we don't know exactly where it was in the desert that he went. But he leaves home And he goes to be alone living in the desert. He's there, according to verse 80, until the day when God in the desert says to him, today's the day. I want you to go. I want you to step forth and begin your ministry. And wonder of wonders, the day that John steps out of the desert at just the right time happens to be the day, the time when Jesus is coming to begin his earthly ministry, and they step onto the scene together. If y'all listening, shout amen. Amen. Do you know what John did not have in the desert? Email. Text messaging. He didn't have have 24-hour news feed coming across his device, letting him know Jesus has been born in Bethlehem, and, and now Jesus is an adult, and now Jesus is getting ready, and now, okay, it's time. No, somehow... The Lord spoke to him and said, go. And now's the moment. Can I tell you something I love about our Lord? He is always at work on both ends of the equation, right? 
Sometimes we're in a situation we feel like, I got to manipulate the other side. I got to get over here working this so that all this works out. I got to make it all happen. You just trust the Lord. His timing is perfect. He knows what he's doing. John comes stepping out of the desert. Jesus comes stepping into ministry. And they begin to carry out the purposes for which they were both born. Well, fast forward 30 years, 30-ish years, and you will arrive in Matthew chapter 3. Go there to close this morning, just in our last couple of minutes. Matthew chapter number 3. Let me read to you just quickly about John's ministry. Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse number 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. I've said it several times. Matthew affirms it again. John came to prepare the way. So all the way back to the beginning of our time together this morning, I asked all of you on every campus, are you ready for Christmas? Are you prepared to receive Christ this Christmas? And you may say, well, pastor, how, how can I get ready? What does it look like for me to prepare Well, I don't need to recreate the message. John is the preparer, right? And so his message is the one that you need to hear. And it's still being proclaimed today by by the pages of God's Word. So let me just tell you two things real quickly that John said that you need to hear in order to be prepared to receive Christ this Christmas. Number one, here's the message of John. If you want to be ready for Christmas, turn from your sin. Turn from your sin. Now, maybe that's not what you were expecting to hear, but that's exactly what John said. Look at it. Verse number uh, 2. John came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and said, Repent! The first word of John's message is the command to repent. Isn't that interesting? John says, You're living this way. You're going this direction. You need to turn around, turn from that, and turn toward Christ. The first word out of his lips is to repent. Which, by the way, may I just say, is a far cry from the message heard from most pulpits across America today. Sadly, far too many pulpits in America today seem to affirm and acquiesce to and make allocation for and make excuses for and seem to bring along people in the very sins from which we are commanded to repent. And when we refuse, when we minimize repentance, then we minimize the severity of sin. Sin is a big deal. The Bible says that the wages, the result of our sin is death. The Bible says that all of us have to repent because we're all sinners. And the Bible says that we have been separated from God. It's not me and God like this when I don't know Jesus. No, I'm a sinner. It's God is holy and separate and I am fallen and low. And the only hope that this holy one might have fellowship with this unholy one is if through repentance and faith, my life is is surrendered to Christ. 
and my sins are forgiven. We must be honest about our sin. And by the way, as you know, and I just said, to repent means to turn. I'm going to turn away from and turn to Christ. And it marks a change of season. You see John's message in verse number three, repent. Why should we repent? Well, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Messiah is here. God is doing a new thing in the world and in your life. And when you come to faith in Jesus, it's not just I prayed a prayer, but I never repented. Nothing's really changed. I just go on like I was. No, no. When you come to Christ in repentance and faith, it's a change of season. And the kingdom of God has arrived in your life. You now have a king and his name is Jesus. It changes everything. And so how can I get ready for Christmas this year? It begins by turning from your sin. Trusting in Christ. Repentance and faith. And these two go together. We repent, we turn from our sin, and in faith we turn to Christ who died for us and rose from the dead. Pastor, how do I get ready? Number one, you must be willing to repent of your sin. Number two, finally, you should be willing to receive Jesus as your king. I just mentioned this is really what happens when we come to Christ. We receive him as king, but I... I do want to speak maybe to those of you who already know Jesus as your Savior. And perhaps you're, you're not ready for Christmas this year because you're not really living with Jesus as your King. Look at what the Bible says in verse number 2. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For This is he, John, is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying he is the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Here's, what he's, here's his message. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Well, what does that mean? Let me go back to Isaiah. I'll just read it to you. You don't have to turn. It's only two verses. But Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3, here you have the, direct, the source of the direct quote from Matthew 3. Verse number 3 says, This is the voice of him crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. But it's amplified in Isaiah. Make a straight path or make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill shall be made low, every crooked place shall be made straight, and the rough places shall be made plain. You see, what Isaiah was talking about and what, what John was proclaiming was prepare to receive your king. In the ancient world, when a king was coming to your town, you, to use our vernacular, you rolled out the red carpet for the king. You didn't leave things like they were for the king to come in. You straightened things up because, well, the king was coming, right? And so the roads leading up to the town would go down in deep valleys and come up over steep hills, and they would be rough because of the rocks, and they would be crooked going around the hills. And and so Isaiah said, when the king is coming, you fix all that. You, you raise up the valleys and you take down the mountains and, and you, you smooth out the rough road and you straighten out the crooked and sharp turns. You make the road to your family, to your city, nice and beautiful and straight for the king. You don't leave it the way it is because the king's coming. And may I say, some of us who have called Christ our Savior have left our house just the way it was. We haven't said, I have a king now and I want to prepare my life for him. I want it to be cleansed by his power and spirit. I want it to be straightened. I want it to be made right in a way that's not perfect because it can't be, but a way that honors him. 
You may have known that about two weeks ago, was it, that President Biden and the premier of China, the president of China, was it uh, Xi, Xi Jinping, they met together in San Francisco. And interestingly, before they arrived, there was a great amount of work that was done in San Francisco. And so a lot of the homeless encampments where there were tents on the sidewalks and, and, uh, and human uh, waste laying along the gutters and the, and the curbs and all of that, they, they cleaned all that out. They, they rooted up all those tents. They took all the, those folks off the street. And then they went through and they resurfaced the roads where the motorcade would come through. And they repainted even the crosswalks. And they even painted buildings along the side. They planted flowers because the dignitaries were coming through. Well, I would suggest to you that Jesus is worthy of more than either one of the two who were in San Francisco a few weeks ago. And we ought to do some house cleaning in our lives to receive the king. Amen. You want to be ready for Christmas? Make sure that you've turned from your sin. Make sure Jesus is your savior. And then this Christmas, say, Lord, by your grace and through your spirit, would you help the valleys in my life to be raised up and the mountains to be broken down and those curvy and rough places? God, would you just let my life be one that honors you? And then whatever he says to you, do it and get ready for him to come.